Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This will air on Monday, March 21st, 2022. The next registration deadline is Wednesday, April 27th. That's for the June 2022 LSAT. Um, next week, we have an interview with Rachel Gezersay, the author of the Lost Career Playbook, the Law Career Playbook, The Guerrilla Guide to Getting a Legal Job You Actually Like. If you have any questions about the legal market or how to get a job, send your questions to help at thinkinglsat.com before March 22nd. You need to do that right now. That's the episodes coming out on the 21st. We're interviewing her tomorrow, the 22nd. So if you're a day one listener, which we love you guys, uh, day one listeners, you need to write us right now. Uh, don't wait. Send us a question for uh, someone who wrote an entire damn book about getting jobs uh, in law. Yep. She's also an adjunct professor at USC and uh, an actual practicing attorney. So, um, yeah. Then we have uh, on the 29th, we're interviewing Judy, the YouTube lawyer. You've got a little bit more time to do that, but you can go check out her videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, Judy, the YouTube lawyer. She has a voice that's uh, very similar to ours. And she's, she's on the kind of don't go to law school. Uh, because she herself it kind of seems like she regrets her career choice. And by the way, she did go to Georgetown Law, and she is not happy with it. Yeah. So um, I'm excited to interview Judy, and if you have want to watch her videos, uh, and um, they're provo they're provocative, you should check them out. Check out Judy, the YouTube lawyer, and email us help at thinkinglset.com. Yep. Also, come to Nathan's April 2022 LSAT study group. Those are every other Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. All you need is a demon-free account, which you can get at LSATdemon.com. Uh, and then ask Nathan any questions you want right to his face. So, uh, Right to my actual face. <laughs> in Zoom. So we have this uh, little pre... Oh, what did we talk about on the show today? We talked... Well, we had an yeah. interview with Kyle McEntee, um, you know, senior director for the Law Hub's pre-law division now at Law School Admission Council. He founded Law School Transparency, and there was a merger between those two, Law School Transparency and LSAC. So we interviewed Kyle all about that. Yep. Uh, we had... Yeah, what else did we talk about? Uh, we talked about dropping contrapositives from your mind, period. You don't need to think about them ever again. That's great news for people who have been study who have been studying and struggling with the LSAT for a long time. Yep. If you study with us, you do not need to think about contrapositives ever again. Well, listen to our discussion and we'll explain why you don't have to think about contrapositives. Yep. But you don't need them. You, your teacher, I know your teacher told you about them and now you're super confused about contrapositives, but you don't need a, contra a contrapositive in your life. Yep. We also talked about uh, the benefits of being in a situation where games is your weakest section. If that's the case, that can be good news for you. Um, and then we talked. And we had a yeah follow-up email from a previous show. Yep, about Google Analytics and the job opportunities there. And that's where we went into paying for school generally and why you probably shouldn't. <laughs> How but. dumb it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so you have this email here from Mike. You want to read it? Yeah, yeah. This is. I thought it would be a fun little item for the top of the show. Uh, it says, this might be a little outside the scope of the show, but I can't stop attacking Wordle like it's a logic game. I would love to hear how you guys would approach this game as if it were on the LSAT. Thanks for all you do, 
Mike, and I have been doing Wordle recently. Ben, have you ever checked out Wordle I've at all? I've checked it out once per your invite. Um, I, Were you successful? No, did I you did, solve the Wordle? I did not solve the Wordle, and I promptly closed the browser. <laughs> you failed. I failed, and I, I have to admit, I, I don't like crossword puzzles. I don't. I actually, despite doing well, it's not games, a crossword. Well, it's not, but I just don't like these games. I don't, I don't care for them. So it's wow. Yeah, I mean, I'll do a logic game on the LSAT, and for some reason, I enjoy that. Maybe because it's associated with the LSAT, and I just did so many of them. But I, yeah, I'm just not interested. In yeah, like I. I wonder if it has something to do with your inability to sound out words. Or your it, it could be. I don't think it's. I don't think unique. It's, I don't think it's unique to Wordle. Um, I right. I know. That's what I'm saying. Is that like you? Because you, you also hate crosswords, and you, you know, you're like dyslexic or something. Yeah, I do a, have something. Yeah, you've got a, some kind of a difference, and uh, we love you, <laughs> and it's okay, and we embrace all kinds of different people around here. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you're. Um, Okay, well, I'm not surprised that you don't like the Wordle, I guess, uh, given all of that. I love the Wordle. Mm. I think it's super cool, and I do actually approach it like a logic game. I have some thoughts about it. Um, I, My buddy introduced me to it recently, and since he introduced me to it about a month ago, I have done it almost every day. I do look forward to it. I really like it. It takes me all of 90 seconds every day to do the Wordle. Mm -hmm. um, the way I do it is, so he starts with the same word every time. It's, I would imagine you you'd want a word, word that has like a lot of vowels in it, right? To Yeah, I think that's a pretty good strategy. He starts with the word farts. And that's probably because he has two young boys and he thinks it's amusing. It's, his humor has now devolved into little kid humor. But farts has some good consonants in it. Yeah, it has right? the RST. The R and the T and the S. Yeah, yeah. And an F is pretty good, and A is a pretty good vowel. So, so like farts is a good one. I tend to use a different word every day. Mm. Um, I've actually used demon the last couple of days. I put demon because mm. I realized that demon has two vowels in it, and the consonants aren't bad. D, a, D, M, and N are pretty useful. Sure. So start with demon. I don't know. I like to do it with just a different word every day, just to play around with it. Yeah. But there probably is some optimal word that has like A E O. Sure. You know, or maybe I instead of one of those. But like <clears throat> I could see a word that has all the vowels being the, the optimal word. And then so I would sometimes I fuck up. Mm. I by the way, I have friends who do it for time. They try to see how fast they can get it. Yeah. I don't think that's the way to do it. I like to I like to try to get it in as few guesses as possible. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there's two types of people in the world. There's people who do the world for the Wordle for, for time, and there's people who do the Wordle for guesses. And then there's and people like who don't do, do Wordle. So there's, there's people who don't do it at all because it's dumb. <laughs> it is dumb, and it is a complete waste of time. But uh, whatever. It's a little fun game that I like to play every day. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So uh, um, it takes nothing. It takes no time. I, I guess I put a five-letter word, yeah. and then... The, the thing that I did, so I, you can fuck it up in a couple different ways. Mm. If you know that a letter is in the word, but in the wrong position, it is critical that you then on the next guess, if you're going for fewest guesses mm -hmm. on the very next guess, you need to use that letter again in your next guess. And sometimes if I'm lazy or if I don't think about it right, I like, 
I guess a new word that doesn't include that letter. Yeah. And that's dumb because if you don't do that, then you don't rule out another position for that letter. Yeah, yeah. And you're supposed to be trying to solve exactly what, you know, five letters. Yeah. So that is a dumb mistake. And I've caught myself making that error a couple times when I'm just like, you know, I kind of go to sleep. Like I get a little lazy about it. Mm-hmm. And that hurts my performance. Yeah. I've only failed one wordle ever. Mm. And the, the one time that I failed was when I had made that particular error. I looked back at my thing and I was like, oh shit, there was an E and I guessed that word without an E in it. Mm-hmm. And that's dumb. Yeah. The uh, second thing, if, and I did this actually this morning, which I can't believe I did it, but there was a letter that was green. So I knew that it was actually that letter in that position. And again, because I was dumb and tried to do it too fast, I put that letter in a different spot. Like I didn't realize that I had guessed the letter in the exact correct spot. So I used that letter in the next word, but I moved it as if it was a yellow letter instead of it's a green letter. So if it's a green letter, you need to leave it there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I do. Okay, cool. <laughs> Ready for the Let's show? Let's dive in. Yep. Today on the show, we have Kyle McEntee, currently Senior Director for Law Hub's Pre-Law Division at the Law School Admission Council. Before your role at LSAC, he, he founded Law School Transparency, that was in 2009, where he served as its dir- executive director. And just two weeks ago, LSAC acquired Law School Transparency. Um, Kyle has been on the show before in episode 255 for anyone who, uh, wants to go back and hear more of Kyle today, but yeah, Kyle, I think that's why we had you on the show is law school transparency, which has been this organization that is right. Trying to bring out the truth in the law school arena has just been acquired by LSAC. Makes us curious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty big news in legal education, to be honest. Uh, We really have been outsiders agitating, and LSAC is very much, uh, you know, it's a membership organization where the law schools are the members. And so I think it is a little confusing for people to see like, okay, what is is going on here? What is LSAC thinking? What is LST thinking? And I think this will be a good opportunity to kind of talk to you all about that and kind of shed some light on what everyone's thinking. Cool. Just curious, are you in Pennsylvania right now, now that you're with LSAC or? No, no, I'm uh, in North Carolina and I'm staying remote. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, don't, I can't handle that cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, I'm in, I'm in Virginia I, um, and Nathan's in um, Tahoe, so. Yeah, it's actually snowing outside. Cool. <laughs> Today, March 15th. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so um, thanks for coming on. Maybe to help people get up to speed, I think a lot of people are familiar with law school transparency and and what it was doing, but um, the thing that I kept going to law school transparency for was law school, what was it, job placement numbers, right? So after people graduate, what what percentage of students um, end up getting a big law job or something like that? That's what I was most curious about. And so, but I'm sure people went there for a lot of different reasons. What was the, what was your reason for starting law school transparency and maybe just what was its main 
I don't know, use for most people so people can get familiar with what you were doing there. And then we can talk about what you're doing now at LSAC. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to get into that. So I founded Law School Transparency back in 2009 with a friend of mine, Patrick Lynch. We were uh, in law school together at Vanderbilt. Uh, when I was applying to law school, I was having a tough time figuring out which school should I attend and weighing the pros and cons of various ones without really any high quality information about job outcomes. And really, that's what I cared about. I knew I was going to be borrowing a tremendous amount of money and that I wanted to make good on my investments, uh, not only in the very long term, but in the short term, because debt is debt sucks and you, you want to try to avoid it, you know, the best best you can or at least take on a reasonable amount. Uh, and so when I was at Admitted Students Weekend, Vanderbilt actually released this list of where all graduates from the class of 2007 had gone to work. And I just thought this was incredible information. And Patrick and I were talking and said, you know, why don't we get other schools to start to provide this information? Because it doesn't seem that any other schools are doing so. And in the process of figuring out what data schools had and what they could share, we discovered that law schools were by and large misleading students about their job outcomes. Um, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. Uh, but what really mattered was that the market wasn't informed about the job prospects from various law schools, the kind of jobs, the kind of salaries. And so we decided, you know, this is unacceptable. We got to we got to change this. And so we incorporated law school transparency, uh, my 1L summer, his 2L summer. And from there, we started an advocacy campaign and really started to shed light on what the information that was out there actually meant. So when someone said 99% of these graduates are employed, what did that mean? How did that break down? What don't we know? And then from there, we were able to transition from, okay, here's what we do know from other sources about the labor market as a whole. And you can see there's gaps. Uh, some schools would say 98% of our graduates are employed and it really was 30, 40, 50, 60% in law jobs. And so we worked with the ABA, we worked with law schools to change the disclosure norms and to change the regulations. And from the data that we generated, both through the requirements and the norm changes, uh, we were able to create tools and services to help pre-law students make informed decisions about whether and where to go to law school, and then ultimately how much to pay. Uh, and you know, the work evolved over time, but really at the heart of it was trying to help pre-law students make informed choices, trying to bring the cost of legal education down, and, you know, to this day, that's something that I'm going to be able to continue to do through Law School Transparency, now at LSAC. Okay. Um, Nathan, any thoughts on any of that? I mean, our listeners wanted to know the, the thing that they, that they emailed about the most, I think, is that they find Law School Transparency to be super useful. They want to know how law school transparency is going to change now that you guys have joined forces. Also, I want to know, are we calling it an acquisition or are we not calling it an acquisition? It is an acquisition, okay. uh, although no money changed hands. Um, I got it. More or less, it was a donation of assets uh, from Law School Transparency Corporation to Law School Mission Council, the corporation. But we're both nonprofits, so no money exchanged hands. So how's it going to change? Uh, how, how is LST going to change? Uh, we're going to have more resources to keep doing what we're doing um, and do things better. Uh, I can say that we're not going to start charging for anything that is free right now. Uh, the Legal Career Compass is the only thing on lawschooltransparency.com right, right now that we sell, and that's $39. That's not going to change. The tools we have to help people understand law school job outcomes, admission statistics, bar, bar exam outcomes, salaries, 
all that great stuff that people have come to love about LST, that's going to stay the same. And at least in the near term, that's going to remain at lawschooltransparency.com. Long term, we may integrate that into LawHub. That's, you know, not really on my radar right now because I think primarily we want to make sure students understand it's still going to be the same great stuff that they're accustomed to. So did, did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? What, what did, how did this get all started? And yeah, how did you decide, yeah. yeah, this is great. We're going to get more resources and I want to do this <laughs> versus wait a sec. <laughs> um, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. So we've had a great relationship with LSAC ever since Kelly Testy took over as president and CEO. Uh, she really is a visionary and a disruptor. And her and I have seen eye to eye on law school policy issues as far back as we've been talking. Uh, I guess it was like three or four years ago. I can't remember the exact dates at this point, but they started to fund part of our podcast, I'm the Law, which profiles lawyers in different jobs to help people understand what practice is actually like. So they stop relying on books, movies, TV, etc. And so they were able to fund that and we started our kind of a relationship there. Uh, but then this past summer, I reached out to Kelly and said, hey, I've got this idea for something I want to do on law school transparency, but I think there might be a licensing issue. And as, as you all know, as licensees of LSAC, uh, it's really important to, to get that right. Uh, and so she put me in touch with uh, Eric Krajinovich and he... Uh, and I started chatting about what LST's vision was for how to help pre-law students um, make more informed choices and to have a, a better access to legal education, more or less, uh, better access to information. And he's like, we've got a pretty similar vision here. We should talk about how we can partner. Uh, so I ended up on a, a meeting with senior leadership um, describing what LST's vision was for the future. And they were all super excited. And they're like, well what do you want? Like, what, what do you actually want out of this relationship? And I said, to be honest, I'm tired of the hustle. I'm tired of having to figure out where my next paycheck's going to come from. I'm tired of figuring out how I'm going to pay my contractors and whether I'm going to be able to make this video or that video or improve the website in one way or another. Uh, so what I want is the support of a, of a strong team. And so like, so what I want is for you all to acquire LST. And they were shocked by that because, you know, again, this outside agitator uh, who they do well over the years, but we're still surprised that I was willing to bring our resources into their fold. Uh, but as we continue to talk about it, it was just such a natural fit because the vision for Law Hub going forward is really about student outcomes. And it's really a huge shift um, in focus um, away from not just the membership, meaning the member law schools, but also to students and also focusing on pre-law success academic success and professional success. And that vision for Law Hub is really what LST was starting to work on and why I reached out to them in the first place. Interesting. So I am curious what, uh, so it sounds like your vision or your, the project that you wanted to work on involved actual LSAT questions, right? When you say licensing, that's, that's what we're talking about. So you wanted to provide some, I don't know, preparation for people or something like that or... Yeah. Yeah. So we were in discussions with uh, this uh, vendor about possibly providing explanations of various questions mm. through the website. Mm -hmm. uh, now we've abandoned that. So we're not going to be doing that anymore. Um, but that was the original idea was if we're going to explain these things, but not show the actual questions 
do we need to license? And if we want to show some questions, what does that licensing fee look like? And that's where we just kind of put that conversation to the side and said, let's just talk about doing, doing things together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, I'm a terrible interviewer, so I have I, I do have three questions, uh, but they're just kind of all over the place. Um, you mentioned your podcast, We Are the Law. I Apple am the Pod law. I am the law. I, I'm sorry. I am the law. Yeah, um, Apple Podcasts doesn't show any new episodes since 2020. Are you still doing that show or no? Yeah, so that's one of the things I'm excited that we'll be able to reinvest in coming up this year is doing more episodes of that show. Okay, so you've been on hiatus, but you're planning to bring it back. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Beautiful Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Yeah, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, LawSchoolTransparency.com. If you go there, there's uh, the podcasts are all organized by category and tagged in all kinds of different ways, and it's a, a good way of exploring practice areas, practice settings that really might be a great fit for your personality, and you just don't know because all you saw was legally blonde. <laughs> Any plans to interview people who went to law school but didn't practice law? Yes, yeah, so we've had several people on uh, who do that. We do focus on people who grad who graduated and went to actually practice law, but I do think it's important to show that there are different things that people end up doing with their law degree, and oftentimes what they end up doing does kind of build on their practice experience. Other than there's people, I assume probably like both of you and like me who actually never practice law, uh, who are making uh, good use of their degrees nonetheless. Got it. Okay. Um, I guess, well, I guess maybe I only have one other question that I want to talk about right away. Um, you mentioned norm changes. One of the norms that we have, I guess, complained about on the show in the past has to do with the ABA disclosures, um, specifically on the 509 reports. Mm -hmm. They, they publish, um, scholarships and they publish race slash ethnicity. Right. But there's no cross section of those two. So we can't see what scholarships are being offered to what people of race and ethnicity. Um, yeah, that's a huge problem. Uh, what we know about law school scholarships is that students of color pay more for law school right. than their white counterparts. And that that's a real problem for equity. That's uh if we're serious about having a more accessible profession, we need to actually price legal education in a more equitable way. And I do think disclosing of that data would go a long ways for helping people understand when this happens, why it happens, and force everyone to confront, you know, is this the way we want to be building our profession from the ground up? So that's a norm change. I mean, you, you've, you've actually created some change in this space. Mm -hmm. If that was a thing that we wanted to all try to work on, because it's clearly a problem, right? I mean, like black and brown people paying more for law school or black and brown people getting out of law school with more debt than other people is a huge problem. That's a broken system. That's and nobody involved in this whole system wants that to be the case. Nonetheless, right. that is the case because they give scholarships based on LSAT and GPA largely. And so then we end up with this system where like white people pay less and that's fucked up and nobody wants that. So how, how, if, if, if it is like, I, I totally agree that like, if we could just 
what do they say about sunshine? Sunshine being the best antiseptic Dis- or something. Disinfectant uh, or something. Yeah. Disinfectant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, Justice Brandeis said that in one of his opinions, I think in the early 1900s. Ah. Okay. So if we wanted the sunlight to hit this issue, I mean, boy, if they could show a cross section, right. Of like, yeah. well, here's the scholarships we gave and here's how that breaks down by race and ethnicity. Yep. Man. How do we get that change done? Yeah. So actually, I'm going to take off my LSAC hat here because I'm not not speaking on behalf of LSAC here. But in my prior work at LST, we had put proposals before the ABA section of legal education and suggested how exactly uh, they could collect the data and then display the data. And if you want to see more about this, you could see LST's 2025 vision. Uh, But the ABA has has that under consideration right now. So I think if you want to see that, the best thing to do is reach out to the ABA section of legal education and say, this is important to me. This is important to my students. This is important to the longevity and success of our profession and ultimately our society. Because, I mean, as as you just said, it's absurd that black and brown people are paying more for law school, uh, borrowing more for law school. And it's even worse when you consider that they don't last as long in the profession. They don't ascend to leadership in the same way and they make less. So all these structural problems in the profession are compounded by this problem of pricing in legal education. And it ruins opportunity. Well, It It really does ruin opportunity. It's starting you off on the wrong foot in just all the wrong ways, right? You're, Mm -hmm. You're paying for something that now you're burdened with this this additional debt it's 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 like it's worse than not accepting some people <laughs> it would be better to say hey just don't come save your money and pursue a path that is not going to put you in this much debt right from the beginning it's 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 like setting people up to fail yeah and i think it's worth looking at the incentives at play here with law schools because we have a system based around U.S. news, more or less. That's where people, a lot of people make their decisions using uh, using U.S. news when they really should be using LST, as a lot of, I think, your listeners and viewers know. Uh, but when U.S. news incentivizes spending in a certain way, and when they incentivize uh, too heightened of a focus on LSAT and GPA, that causes these kinds of problems. And to step outside of the rat race is very difficult for schools. And that's why it's important for regulators to get involved and why it's important for outside voices to, to call for change. Um, but it really does come down to an incentives problem. Uh, law schools think that they need their US news ranking to be maintained or go up. And they think that the big part of doing that is maintaining your GPA and LSAT scores, uh, as well as spending money to, to do that. And that has all these downstream effects that really don't comport with the visions that they've outlined for their communities and for their schools. Yeah, we're, it's like we're all stuck in this wild prisoner's dilemma, right? right. Where any of us independently, nobody wants this system. I, I don't believe that any law school is out there trying to charge black and brown people more money or it put black and brown people into a position where they graduate with more debt and have worse job outcomes. Nobody wants that. Um, Everybody genuinely does want access. Everybody does genuinely want the pipeline and to, to try to diversify the legal field. And like that's, we all have good intentions. 
nonetheless, we all end up perpetuating this system that does exactly that. Absolutely. So, I, I had a uh, interesting conversation with a law school dean a few years ago, and I asked her to go look at her numbers to say, you know, do you see these patterns that we see nationally at your school where your black and brown students are paying more than your white students? And she came back to me and said, and she was completely ashamed, like hat in hand. Yes. And I said, well, what, what are you going to do about it? And she said, I have too much pressure from trustees, from faculty, from students to maintain my rank. So I don't know what to do. Please help me. And I was like, I can only do so much, right? I can try to be a voice here, but it's, it's a systemic problem and it requires systemic solutions. And I think that's part of why I'm so excited to be at LSAC is because we're a membership organization and we do have access to basically everyone who goes through law school it's an opportunity to, to cause actual genuine change um, with challenges, but you know, it's, I think it's possible. So one thing you specifically mentioned was reaching out to the ABA and encouraging them to report this data. And I do think that would be huge, right? Because the, the pressure, the, the, <laughs> the inverse pressure that would come from seeing these numbers would maybe be enough to push um, all sorts of people in other directions, right? Like, like you said, it's, it's embarrassing, right? Um, but I'm curious what the ABA is like, who are, the, who are the players that are influencing the ABA? Why isn't it just an obvious, like, oh yeah, this seems like a problem and extraordinarily enlightening. Why don't we require this information? Who's pushing back against that? The law schools, presumably. Um, I, I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. So I've actually only heard of law schools supporting the change. There might be some schools that don't. The real issue is that we were pushing this forward at a time, the time of COVID. And so the ABA was way more concerned about figuring out online education, uh, getting their authorizations from the Department of Education and communicating that to law schools. And so I'm hopeful that in the coming months, as we kind of move from the pan move on from the pandemic, you know, as best as we possibly can, that they'll be able to turn their attention once again to this kind of information. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, do we write yeah. a letter? You, I mean, are you, uh, I like specifically asked, well, what can I do? And you're like, well, reach out to the ABA committee on legal education. Yeah. So section on legal, legal yeah, education. So it's the ABA section of legal education. There is a staff that's led by Bill Adams and then there's a council. Uh, I think the chair right now is a partner at Dwayne Morris. So I can Not call sure them and complain. I can write an email and uh, try to express my views. Is there something that we could yeah. do like a systematically, a petition, a website, an e email campaign of some sort? Yeah, I think uh, I think getting a petition would be an interesting way that, uh, of doing it. Saying, here's the people who I'm bringing in, maybe from the LSAT test prep community, uh, saying, look, we don't like the way this is. Uh, this is something we think would address this and then send it to the council, uh, send it to the leadership of the council. And uh, you know, there's 20 or so people on the council and you might know some of them uh, or know someone who knows one of them and talk to them about it. I, I, I do think that it's the right time for this. And I do think that there is an interest on the membership uh, of the council to actually see this change through. Um, but they, they need to know that it does matter and that this needs to be a priority. And that you Amazing. think it would work. Okay. And that you think it would work. And we, there is evidence that it does work, right? Uh, that sunshine does work. So we saw with the employment statistics, better numbers caused a difference in enrollment trends, for one. 
Uh, secondly, when conditional scholarships were first made transparent mm. back in 2013, we saw a steep drop off in the number of schools offering those scholarships, mm -hmm. which again, I think goes to the same problem of embarrassment. Like, oh, is that something we're doing? And it's this bad? Yeah. And then, then we saw some change. Now, not not change across the board, but there there were measure there was measurable change that followed from that sunlight. Well, I don't know that it's an easy problem to solve because, um, you, it's not that LSAT and GPA numbers are not without merit, right? They also, you you want if you ignore color and you just try to you know accept people and you're just looking at those numbers. You're accepting people precisely because you believe those numbers are going to indicate their likelihood of success. So there's there's this merit to them, but we need to shine light on it so at least people can start thinking about it. And how do you grapple with that? And is the problem now going to have to be pushed back even further? I have no idea. But without that information, there's no pressure to solve it. I think. I think. Oh, go ahead, Nathan. Well, I just I think information would help a lot. But there is one easy fix that I can think of, which would be just American Bar Association bans law school scholarships. Like you're just not allowed to do that and be accredited by the ABA because the scholarships are what caused the problem. And, and then that forces us to be complicit because we're like, hey, it ain't worth $70,000 to go to this school. Look, there are 20% of the people at that school who pay zero you need to be in the zero who don't pay for that school or you need to not go to that school because you're getting ripped off if you pay $70,000 to go to that school. And we think that that is clear. So like we're out there yelling constantly, Ben and I are yelling on every episode of like, get a scholarship or don't go. And so that just makes the problem worse, even though that is the correct advice we think to for any individual student, we think that's what you should be doing. And so then now the students themselves have to be complicit in this whole thing where it's like, well, that was the game. And so I went to a school that was going to give me a scholarship. So I didn't pay for law school. Meanwhile, all these other poorer, less savvy people ended up paying. So uh, a, a few, few things to say, I think, on that. Uh, the first is that another approach is closing the score gap, right? I think that is something that uh, LSEC's new chief diversity officer, Angela Winfield, uh, you know, her approach to DEI uh, really is about fundamentally reshaping the profession. And a big tenet of actually reaching that goal is to close the score gap. So that way, you know, that advice you provide doesn't necessarily harm one group over another. Uh, and I lost track of my other point. Oh, the other, the other point was on uh, your, your advice to help students, uh, you know, pay less for law school. And I think that's a, you know, enviable advice. I think it can be more complicated, uh, that sometimes some schools are worth more than other schools. I think that's clear. Uh, and sometimes it's worth paying more and sometimes it's not. And, you know, helping people to understand, to do that cost analysis is incredibly, incredibly important. And so I'm, I'm really glad to hear you guys encouraging that. You mentioned kind of casually closing the score gap. What does that mean? Yeah, so the the black and brown students score lower on the LSAT than white students and Asian students, uh, and this reflects you know centuries of systemic racism. Uh, it doesn't reflect ability, and so 
the one way to address this without addressing the structural problems of uh, the, the incentives problem we were discussing is, well, just close that gap. Uh, if, if black and brown students score higher, uh, that some of these problems are, are mitigated a little bit. Uh, not all of them, of course, because the problems in our society run way deeper than just scores. Right, but how do we magically make black and brown people score higher? Oh, well, I think, I think it's uh, access to test prep resources is a big thing. So uh, that's part of the reason why LSAC invested in the Khan Academy. Uh, part of the problem with Khan Academy is there's not that reaching out one-on-one -on -one that you are, you are able to do. And I suspect that when you do one-on-ones, people end up having more improved uh, scores. And so trying to figure out, you know, that, I mean, that's, and that's the problem, right? It's like, it's a thorny issue to try to solve. But again, that's, that's, that's the goal. Well, it's not about one-on-one. -on -one. We don't, we don't do very much one-on-one -on -one work, to be honest, but we, <laughs> we see people improve their LSAT by 20 points mm -hmm. without ever talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. So it's not really about that. Um, we do help a lot. Mm -hmm. I, what do you track demographics on who you help and how much it helps them? We don't. So that might be one step to take is to start to track those demographics and, and do analysis and see what you can learn from, from your practices. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think we, the profession can learn a lot from, from you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we could probably work on that. The other thing, this is not really related to the current discussion. Again, I'm a terrible podcast interviewer. Um, <laughs> ben, could we start using law school transparency rankings instead of using U.S. news rankings on the scholarship estimator? Kyle, have you ever seen the scholarship estimator? LSATDU.com slash scholarships. I've not. I, I, last time we talked, you were about to release it. So okay. I'm excited to go take a look at it. Yeah, lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. And we just still use default U.S. news rankings because that's what everybody else seems to be interested in. But, you know, I, I need to go back and revisit our discussion that we had way back on episode 255 of Thinking LSAT podcast. Because if law school transparency rankings are actually better for students, then Ben, maybe we should just start ignoring U.S. news on that tool and just make it just be the LST rankings. Sure. So. Yeah. So <clears throat> quick recap, what's the main driver for the LST rankings? So we don't actually have a ranking per se. So if you were to yeah. do that, I would suggest using the employment score and then linking to a profile that lets them explore the data in more depth. But the employment score is the percentage of graduates um, who are in long-term full-time bar passage required jobs less solo practitioners that are also long-term full-time. Uh, basically, this is the number of percentage of high-quality jobs that people are getting on the market uh, as opposed to creating for themselves. Uh, that said, we do have a, a, rate, a rating tool. Uh, you can call it a custom ranking, but what that does is it takes input from students, uh, asks about their job preferences, and then from that, we'll give a rating from 1 to 10. It's actually, I think, 1 to 9.5. Uh, that will basically describe how close to a school that you want to go to based on what you've told us about your preferences, uh, how close it is. Mm. So it, it part of the challenge is there's not a clean one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way down to 200, right? Uh, which makes it 
I part that's part of what's appealing about a ranking system is that simplicity because you can derive authority from simplicity. The problem is when the methodology is unsound, like the US News methodology is incredibly unsound and unreliable. Uh, and there's rumors floating around, which I was just telling someone makes me sick, that there's going to be these shakeups in US News this year uh, in terms of where schools fall in the rankings. And I just want students to say like, or think to themselves, why does this matter? Do these small changes actually reflect something meaningful? And without looking at the underlying data, you just you can't know. And the problem with US News is it compares schools that don't belong being compared to each other. So you shouldn't compare the school from California that places graduates in California to the school in New York that places graduates <laughs> yeah. in New York, right? Well, They're not, those graduates aren't competing with each it's other. It's so ridiculous. Like Georgetown was in the top 14. Now Georgetown's not in the top 14. UCLA was not in the top 14. Now it is. So it's like a replacement of like, well, no, it's not Georgetown anymore. Instead, it's UCLA. And it's like, what? Those schools are just entirely different places. And it's yeah. a literally one spot in the rankings difference that everybody blows up into this huge newsworthy item because it's really dumb. Yeah. Everybody definitely are are people across who, America now like heading <laughs> heading west instead of east? Right. Like, it, well, they, that's the thing is that they literally are. We know our students, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Our students are like, no, top fourteen or bust. So I was going to apply to Georgetown, but now I'm not. Now I'm going to apply to UCLA instead. And it's like, God damn it, really? Why? Oh my God, that's dumb. I sorry, Kyle. I really want I want to check one thing. So you said. I've been, I've been looking at the um, employment data that's available on the mm -hmm. ABA Disclosures website, and there's tons of categories, right, for employment. There's all, and, and like you said, there's long term, there's, I don't know if it's short term or what. Short term. Yeah, is that what they use? Yeah, long, so, yeah. Long term is when a job is anticipated to last one year or more Ooh, or okay. indefinitely. Okay. And short term is everything else. Oh, geez. So if you've got like a clerk, so a clerkship that's one year exactly yeah. is a long-term job. Uh, you know, if you work at Starbucks, that is also a long-term job, right? Okay. Because you're there indefinitely. Yeah. But if you're in a contract, that's like a three month contract. Yeah. That is short term. Got it. So you're look, you're, um, you specifically look at long-term full-time JD required jobs. That's bar passage required, but yes, oh, bar, same, more or less okay, the same yeah, thing. JD bar yeah. passage. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah. okay. The other meaningful category is JD advantage, um, long-term full-time JD advantage, but that like, there are a lot of good jobs in that category, but there's also a lot of jobs that people don't want. Um, roughly four in 10 or two in five, if you want to do better math, uh, of those graduates who are in those jobs are still looking for another job. So 40% are unhappy so with JD advantage. That's the proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it's like seven, eight, 9% for bar passage required. Mm. And it makes sense. People go to law school to be lawyers uh, on, on average. Uh, and, you know, as you, you know, professional, it's higher than 40%. And then the non-professional, as you might imagine, it's through the roof. No one goes to law school to be a non, in a non-professional job. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting. But yeah, by focusing on those kind of gold standard jobs, Sorry, what notes. we're really doing, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, but by focusing on those long-term full-time, you know, bar passage required jobs, we're really looking at what do students want? What are they trying to understand about their 
professional career path uh, and try to give them that information and say, you know, this is your top line number. Look at this to understand what you're getting into. Uh, you might decide, you know, yeah, this school has a 60% employment rate on this metric, but you know, that's good enough for me because of the price I'm paying or because my backup plans don't require that. Uh, it's just good to start with that information and that just gets you closer to making an informed decision. And I mean, that, that's one of the key things for LSAC here is we believe that informed students, they take more ownership of their learning journeys and their careers. And that's good for legal education. That's good for the legal profession. That's great for society as a whole. Unfortunately, I have to wrap it up here, fellas. Um, Kyle, can we get you back sometime really soon on our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily? Yeah, absolutely. Always happy to right. join y'all. Yeah, we'll email you and we will uh, set that up very shortly. Um, Kyle McEntee is Senior Director for Law Hub's Pre-Law Division at the Law School Admission Council. Uh, founder of Law School Transparency. You can still go to lawschooltransparency.com. If you want to reach out to him directly, he's KP McEntee on Twitter. That's McEntee, M-C-E-N-T-E-E. -E -E. Uh, so KP McEntee on Twitter. Anything else, Kyle? Just that I see I never changed my name away from Sterling Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Sterling Bates on, he's Sterling Bates on Zoom. <laughs> looking for him there. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Kyle. We will uh, talk to you real soon, I hope. Yep. Likewise. See ya. Take care. All right. Quick announcement. The LSAT Demon is in the uh, iPhone app store. So if you have a Demon account, you can go to the app store on your iPhone, download LSAT Demon, and start doing it in the app. That's amazing. How, how's that been uh, going so far? How, has it been well-received? Have we already started pushing updates to it? Yes, uh, we have been pushing updates to it based on the feedback we've gotten. It's been super positive so far, but <laughs> I'm also skeptical of that positiveness because, you know, it's always the, the most enthusiastic students who hear that we even, <laughs> even have the app and then go to the app. And right. so... Um, I'm waiting for the more general public to provide us our more probably honest feedback. Like, <laughs> are we still ranked like 30th for, for LSAT? Yeah. App? If you search for LSAT in the app store, you have to scroll like down, down, down to look for what LSAT. What if you search for LSAT demon? Even then it's like, what? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> okay. we're, they're still well, treating us like newbies, which is fine. Um, but Anyways, yeah, it's there. You can find it um, and start just doing what you've been doing on your phone, but in an app. Uh, tablet app too? Not yet. iPhone only. Okay. Yep. So tablet, I'm sure, is in the works and uh, Android also eventually in the works. Yes, these things are in the works. Their priority depends largely on how many people want to use this. And uh, so we're also trying to figure that out too. Oh, if people don't use that. I mean, the mobile site has worked for a long ass time, so... You know, maybe people don't actually want the app despite asking for the app. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean... All right, well, that's something to learn. I'm, we're just, you know, we have a lot of things in the fryer and it's just like, okay, what things deserve our resources or sh should get our resources now? And it really depends on what people want, right? What people need and use. And so um, it's a balancing act between new features for the current website and then making the app just better and expand it to the tablet and to expand it to Android and all that stuff. 
Cool. All right. We have a couple uh, quick items of LSAT, uh, LSAT specific content. So one is uh, a tutoring report from Matt. Okay. Uh, this one says, so this was from our teacher channel on Slack. Matt said, or uh, yeah, tutor, tutoring channel on Slack. Okay. Matt said about one of his meetings with uh, one of his students, he said, the best moment came from, wait, I never have to do contrapositives again. <laughs> And I said, nope, fuck contrapositives. Either the rule applies or it doesn't. This might be a good topic along the lines of contrapositives or our dog shit or some other more PC way to say it. I don't know why Matt thought that we would want to find a more PC way to say <laughs> We'd it. Want to mollify his, his claim. Yeah, we don't, we don't use expletives on this show, Matt. Gosh. I'm, did you say mollify? Mollify? Yeah. Is that the right? Mollify. Yeah. I would have said mollify. Uh, that is to appease the anger or anxiety of someone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Or a rare usage to reduce the severity of something. To soften, to soften it. it. Okay. Which is how you used it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, we're not going to mollify shit. <laughs> contrapositives are dog shit. I, I have been an offender. I am a reformed contrapositive dog shit dispenser. Mm-hmm. I am, I am sorry. I used to start my classes like on the first night of class, it would be like, let's talk about conditional reasoning. Yep. And I'd start drawing arrows on the board and I'd start being like, it's very important that you know that an if then statement. And I would always use very simple examples. Mm -hmm. I started my business in San Francisco. If you're in San Francisco, then you're in California. And then I would write down the contrapositive of that rule, which is if you're not in California, then... We know you're not in San Francisco. Yep, and everybody and dutifully wrote it down, right? Everybody's <laughs> and I, scribbling. And then, uh, I led thousands of students astray over the years because they then started thinking that diagramming and focusing on the contrapositive was a good way to do the LSAT, and it is sadly not. <laughs> it is It is unfortunate that every LSAT book, including some of mine, and every LSAT class, including yep. all of my old ones and Ben's old ones, used to start with a discussion of the contrapositive, a word that, to my knowledge, has never actually appeared on the LSAT. Yep. And just isn't something that you need to be thinking about. Yep. We have declared the LSAT demon a contrapositive-free zone. Um, there are still <laughs> plenty of examples of us using that word in videos and doing diagrams that involve writing contrapositives on a whiteboard. Uh, I no longer even teach in front of a whiteboard. Ben's still standing in front of a whiteboard. Uh, it, you know, obviously, if you're going to do logic games, diagrams, and stuff, you do need a whiteboard. Yeah. I teach logic games in a little different way now by having students share their uh, diagrams, but <laughs> certainly not for logical reasoning. Dear God, if you start diagramming on logical reasoning, you are hurting yourself, not helping yourself. Mm-hmm. And the, the major irony about focusing on contrapositives is that it causes people 
to confuse sufficient for necessary. Yeah. They're so focused on the diagram of the contrapositive that they then start to get all twisted up in their head and go, oh, so San Francisco, then California. So not California or so not San Francisco, not California. They're both, they're together. Yeah. You know, and they conflate the idea of contrapositive with the idea of worlds. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of doing all of that bullshit, if you ever see a conditional rule, so it could have if or only if or unless, there's lots of different ways that you can say a conditional. But what Matt said, either the rule applies or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. If you're in San Francisco, then yeah, you're in California. In another world, you're not in San Francisco. If you're not in San Francisco, then that rule doesn't apply to you. The rule doesn't say Ain't no anything. contrapositive. Yep. <laughs> the rule doesn't say anything about what happens when you're outside of San Francisco. Right. Ain't, and, and ain't no contrapositive. Mm-hmm. The rule was, if you're in San Francisco, then you're in California. Yep. Another way of saying that is, if you're not in California, then you're not in San Francisco. That's another way of saying the same rule and in formal logic terms, you can call that the contrapositive. But you don't need to think about that. You need to think about the actual rule that you were given. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they gave you the rule, if you're not in California, then you're not in San Francisco. Okay, that rule applies when you're not in California. Anyone who's not in California, the rule applies to you. You cannot be in San Francisco. Anyone who is in California, the rule doesn't apply to you. Yeah, we don't know. Are you in San Francisco or not? We have no way of knowing. Don't from care. That information. Don't yeah. give a shit. <laughs> if you if you are in California, then the rule doesn't apply to you. Yep. The rule was if you're not in California, then you're not in San Francisco. You don't need the contrapositive. You just don't. It doesn't help you ever. Uh, it took me 15 years of LSAT teaching to become so clear about that. And so I apologize to 14 years worth of LSAT students, but we're always trying to get better and uh, go ahead and forget everything you've learned about contrapositives. You just don't need it. Yep. Anything you want to say about that? No. Thanks, Matt, for sharing that. This next one's from uh, Hennessy. Hennessy. All right. You got it. Yep. It says, hi, Ben, Nathan and team. I don't know how many people. Sorry. I don't know many people to celebrate my small LSAT victories with, so I thought I'd let you know. After three months of studying and starting at a 158, I scored a 165 on my practice test today, exclamation point. So Hennessy is excited. Congratulations, Hennessy. Uh, You have broken solidly into the 160s. That is great. Now, the reason why I put this on the agenda, and especially so high up, is that we're going to have some advice for Hennessy. Hennessy says, minus two on LR, minus four on RC, minus seven on LG. Yikes, LOL, she says. Or he says, sorry, I don't, I'm not, I don't remember Hennessy. I'm going to keep working to get every question right. I just wanted to share this exciting milestone with you. Smiley face. Thanks for your time, Hennessy. I always do my smiley face to the to the left. I agree. This smiley face is going to the right. It feels upside down. I know. I think to me that smiley face is upside down. But that's you know. <laughs> that's the most important. That's why you put this on here. I'm assuming. I'm not the arbit- arbiter of emoji placement. Um, well, this is great news, right? The minus seven. I'm assuming that's what you want to talk about. 
that is what I wanted to talk about is that Hennessy, you are an excellent candidate for, in, for continued improvement at, at this point. So this is a 165 with near perfect LR minus four on RC and minus seven on games. Hennessy, you should be working on games like 75% of the time. Um, you know, don't completely neglect LR and RC, but you, if you just clean up your games, you're going to be into the 170s. Yeah. Games is the easiest section on which to improve. And right now it's your worst section. You're missing more on games than you are on the other two sections combined. Yeah. Or at least you did on the most recent test. And that is just the best candidate for improvement. So even though you've already gone from a 158 to a 165, you now have the opportunity to go from a 165 solidly into the 170s, almost entirely just ba- or actually entirely just based on the games. If you if you got to minus zero on the games, you'd already be in the 170s. That's great news. Congratulations! Glad we can share this small LSAT victory with you. And yeah, look forward. If your profile looks like Hennessy, I believe in you a thousand percent that you're going to eventually get to the 170s. If you have the work ethic, yeah, this is the part that I can't really help you with very much other than to just kind of yell at you. You're, you either are or are not going to demonstrate your work ethic. You're either going to get to perfect on the games because you're a hard worker or you're not going to get to perfect on the games because you're not a hard enough worker. Like I don't think that cognitively, if you can score that high on LR and RC, you've got the horsepower, man. I don't believe that there's something in your brain that doesn't work in the way that you might have that excuse, but there are too many games that you can practice. We got a hundred tests worth of games. We got 400 games. How many videos do we have been? Thousands. Yeah. Like for, for all 400 of those games, we probably got an average of like four videos. Yep. You can... See us all the way back in 2014 <laughs> and recent videos. I will say one thing. Just last night I was doing a game and I got this from you. You know, you don't like to write down the rules. And I've somewhat reflexively resisted that because that's just what I did for so long. I just yeah. read a rule and, I, you know, yeah. and for so many, it's true. For so many games, they fall right into the pattern. And so... As I'm reading the game, I'm like, I know what kind of game this is going to be. And so I can go ahead and write the rules. But every now and then, the game doesn't fall into that pattern. But regardless, the, the point is, is that you can, you can understand intuitively what the game is saying. And that allows you to actually just yeah. remember rules because you understand what the rule is saying on an intuitive level, not in some robot robotic form. Right. Yeah. And I think frequently writing down the rules actually prevents you from understanding it. Like you, you're not going to like feel the solution to the puzzle Mm -hmm. because you're turning the rule into some weird abstraction on the page. I mean, especially because many of the rules are just not really like easy to write down. Sometimes you end up writing down some weird hieroglyphic abstraction of the rule that's more complicated than the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's Mm -hmm. like (laughs) you're so focused on how you're going to how you're going to perfectly represent the rule Mm -hmm. 
that you're not just solving the damn puzzle. Yep. Um, do you know the lawmakers game? Lawmakers and scientists. There's like a panel of a few people. Okay. Anyways, it's a level five game, and and the questions are not uh, are levels four and five, right? Sometimes you have a level five okay. game that still enters, you know, mingles a few like easier questions. But last night that game, I didn't write down any rules. I was just reading through it and explaining what was literally happening with that panel, as if it were a yep. real panel. Yeah. And people are like, wait a sec, but but how do I represent this rule? And I'm like, yeah, do you really exactly. need do you really need to write that down? I mean, we just talked about that for a minute. We're like we're I'm visualizing these four people sitting around a table yeah. and it's saying, look, if one of them is in charge, then that person not only can't be in charge next year, they have to be gone. It's 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 a it's a visual thing. I'm seeing the people, and that guy's in charge. And it's like you're out of here next year, buddy. And and people are still like, well, how do I how do I write that down? It's like, do you need you don't understand that? Like you you can't. <laughs> and that's way better because the questions when they ask you questions, you immediately draw that to mind because it's a visual thing. It's a real thing as opposed to an abstraction. That makes me. You know, it just it makes me so happy. Um, that I, I'm excited about continuing to get better at the LSAT mm -hmm. and at teaching the LSAT. Like I can't wait to go through and basically re-record all of the old logic games videos that we have, mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like now anything from prior to 2020 almost yeah. is like, we probably need to go through both you and I need to go through and re-record new videos where we solve these games in an even more intuitive way. Yep. Cause the, the old videos, we were still kind of stuck in some of that dogmatic way of like, it's just, that's how we thought an LSAT class was supposed to look. And that's what we thought a solution to an LSAT logic game was supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And so we're just kind of like, it's inertia, right? It's just like, well, you're just stuck in that way of thinking about it, that way of doing it. And, we were edging toward getting more and more intuitive and just solving the puzzle and just like kind of making worlds right off the bat. And you know, <laughs> now it's like you start to see how simple and how easy it actually can be because it's like, well, what would you do in real life? You've got a panel of doctors and lawyers. It's not, I, they've given you a hundred percent of the information that you need yep. to answer each one of these questions perfectly. So how are you going to figure it out? There's probably a hundred different ways. What are you going to do? And it doesn't necessarily involve slavishly, dogmatically writing out each rule individually. There's lots of other ways to get there. You remember those people that used to, uh, at least I got them in my class every now and then, who would be like, hey, I, I, see, I see what you're drawing on the board, but I just solved this question in my head. And I remember I'd be like, well, you know, you're a special, <laughs> you, you got a special way of doing this and that's awesome. You know, I, I think this, this diagramming works better for the vast majority of people. I'm not saying not to draw things. I'm just saying that I feel like I'm starting to appreciate that that wasn't as unique of a case as it felt like every time I encountered it. I was like, wow, you're just like, you know, you're a, 
you're a savant, you're something special about your brain. It's like, actually, no, maybe you're onto something. Yes, I'm still going to draw things and write things down, but it's not so crazy. It's not such an edge case. Read it like logical reasoning. Read it like reading comp. Yeah, like actually understand it and just figure out how to solve the puzzle. I, I do think that I probably still reflexively go, well, yeah, you, you solved that one in your head, but you know, you got to be careful about doing that in the yeah, future yeah. because reasons. And it's like, well, wait a second, dude, they solved it. They figured it out. If they figured it out, they fucking figured it out. And by the way, if you put a hidden camera on me when I was solving a logic game, yeah. I mean, I am going to make a picture for almost every game, but there's going to be lots of places where I'm going to do shit that I'm not even aware of, where I just kind of look at it and go, well, this, then, okay, yeah, boom. And I saw, and I just answer it in my head without drawing anything at all. Yeah. Now, not the entire game. That's going to be really rare, but for individual questions, sure. Yeah. There's going to be some shit that I'm going to do in my head. Well, and you're going to do a lot more shit in your head if you un intuitively understand what the rules are saying. If you really grapple oh, yeah. with them and like, okay, what are you actually telling me here? Oh, okay. Because in part, you're going to remember them, right? How many people get questions wrong merely because they just, I forgot about that rule. It's like, yeah, well, it's because you wrote it down and then you promptly <laughs> forgot it. Yeah, right. That's, I mean, and it's, that's just like how people take notes or whatever. In reading comp, they, right? They take notes on the side, but they're not actually processing the information. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. The test is yep. becoming more and more similar. It's just read and comprehend, and then the rest will follow. All right, ready to dive into... Thank you, Hennessy, for writing in. Um, we uh, Please email us, help at thinkinglsat.com. We want to continue to get less dogmatic and more common sense about the way we talk about and teach the LSAT and we're excited about it. So um, we encourage all our students in the demon to flag explanations that they think are outdated or like heavy handed, overly theoretical. Um, you can downvote those explanations. You can email the help team. You can hit the ask button and say, Hey, I, Nathan's doing some weird shit on this explanation. Can you, can you have him come, you know, would he, take a look at that and we'll, we'll take a look and we'll fix it. So, um, Lots of different ways to get in touch with us, including help at thinkinglset.com. Yep. This next email. All right, is, a couple of emails. Yeah, this yeah. next one's from Josh. Nathan, I wanted to respond to a few of the talking points from this week's podcast. Okay, so first point, Josh says, the waitlist surveys take anywhere from one to two minutes. They ask for your name, your LSAC number, and to check a box if you're interested in staying on the waitlist. All right, that's response okay. to our discussion about wait lists and how long they took. I think someone asked, is it worth my time to respond to a wait list? And we said, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah, if it's going to take one to two minutes, I mean, if that's too much effort for you, then what? I mean, <laughs> but, you know, that said, we also believe that if you're getting in off the wait list, you're probably not going to get a scholarship. So it, a wait list is essentially a denial in most cases. I, I, I agree, but it's also, it's like, it's one to two minutes to find out. Just scratch the, yeah. <laughs> scratch the Why paper. Why you check that box? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Maybe they are doing yield protection. Yeah. A and so, yeah, maybe they do want to, maybe they do want to just see if you'll take two minutes. His next point is, um, I completed the, this is Josh. I completed the Google analytics course. Here's my perspective. The course was affordable. 
and I learned new skills that may help me one day. I'm speculating here, but I think Google advertises those statistics to get people to enroll in their course. According to the website, there are currently 664,000 people enrolled in the Google Data Analytics course. Google also gives the statistic that there are 337,400 U.S. job openings in data analytics with a $36,900 average entry salary. $67,900. What did I say? 30-something. Oh, geez. Yeah. Anyway, $67,000, $68,000 average entry-level salary yeah. with nearly twice as many people enrolled than the available jobs. Finding an employer is an uphill battle. All right, I got to stop Josh right there. You're thinking about this all wrong, Josh. Like you're thinking about job openings and instead you need to think about skills that are valuable to businesses and employers all over the fucking place. It's like, it's yes, I understand that job postings is one way that you get jobs, but there are lots of other ways that you get jobs and just having marketable skills is a huge way to get jobs. There are jobs that don't that like the the employer doesn't even know exist yet because the right person hasn't showed up with the right skills to be able to chip in and do a thing. Not only that, but this is America and if you want to really get paid, you need to work for yourself. You need to start something and do some shit for yourself instead of trying to get a job. Like you don't want a job. You want a business. I, I, I don't know. I, I like, <laughs> it's just having someone else tell you what to do and pay you a salary. Okay. That's a thing. But if you do something like this, you could like hang your own shingle. And instead of making $68,000 a year working for a company, you could be making $268,000 a year working for yourself. Not right away, but that's where you would be going, right? You're potentially, potentially right away. I mean, like it, maybe not the first day, but like, could he make $68,000 as like 68,000? Could he make that as a freelancer in the first year? Hell yeah. If he knew the right people, if he had any kinds of contacts, if he had like, if he had some hustle, if he had some creativity. I mean, don't get me I wrong. Just, You're preaching to the choir. This is exactly what I did. But I'm also, <laughs> I mean, those are the ifs, right? Sometimes people, they need, they need what the, the steps you need to take to make your personal business successful are not obvious. And so then they, they don't have that money, which is precisely sure. why they go the job route. But, um, it goes back to my like Venn diagram though, right? Of the three things to find career happiness, yeah. be good at it, love it, and figure out how to get paid for it. The figure out how to get paid for it is actually really easy if you're good at it and you love it. If you've got those two things, there's lots of ways to monetize stuff, especially skills like data analytics. I played golf just the other day. I was at visiting my family and I played golf with my dad and a bunch of his buddies. And one of the guys in the group happened to be a doctor. And 
I was asking him because I sometimes get like a little bit angsty about my career. You know, like I've been successful. I, I love what I do. I've been financially successful, but I'm not sure that I like actually do good in the world. Right. So I, I was asking him, um, like, Hey, if, if I was going to go back and like for a hobby, not really for a salary, not really for, you know, I, I don't want to like do nursing, which I know is a good career. I want to use my brain for good in medicine. What would you recommend someone do? Okay. So smart, reasonably young, okay. Middle-aged, but I'm planning on living for a long time. Smart, young-ish person who doesn't really care that much about making money in a career, but wants to just do good mm -hmm. with their brain mm -hmm. in medicine. Mm -hmm. And the first thing out of his mouth was like, well, can you, do you have any computer skills? Yeah. He's like, there's lots of, there's like so many opportunities in telemedicine. I, I did surgery the other day on somebody who was a mile away from my office. Have you, you know, there, there's all kinds of like, we, we need all kinds of help in, and he basically was talking about analytics and just any kind of coding, any kind of technical skills at all. Mm -hmm. And that's how to contribute to the medical field. Yeah. Uh, my point is not like, you know, <laughs> just looking up job postings. Yeah. That's one thing, but developing skills that you know are going to be useful in the future I think is what people, young people should really be focused on. That, that's all I'm saying. Josh continues. There are over 3 million people who have finished one of the Google courses available. I wish your friend the best of luck, but as someone who's going, who's gone through the whole pro course, a job isn't as easy as they advertise without some good connections or a bachelor's degree in data analytics. Okay. Very respectfully, Josh. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not like, I'm not shitting on Josh's <clears throat> personal experience. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's, it's not at, like, if you're just out there doing the resume drop thing, I don't think you're really doing it right. I think, I think we need to be, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm completely full of shit, <laughs> but like, well, I think Josh, you, yeah. you know, people who are, who are probably interested in those skills like us. Leverage those connections. Uh, I mean, one thing I'm thinking, this whole discussion, I think started when we were talking about the cost of education and the benefit or value that you get <laughs> yeah. out of it. Right. Do you know what the cost is, by the way? For this? Alex Alex actually looked it up. Okay. What is it? The Google Data Analytics Program. Alex, our editor. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Looked it up. Okay. It's a Coursera course. It costs $39 a month. For six months or something like that? For like, whatever, six months, nine months. Yeah. I think it depends how long you take to get through it. <laughs> it's $39 a month. So the investment is zero. The, that rounds to zero. Yeah. It's very, very low. And even if you think about, oh, wait, wait, I'm going to law school for free. Well, news for you, right? Matt, who we quoted earlier <laughs> on the show, pointed out that when you go to law school for free, they're still going to charge you about $2,000 a year in fees. 
That was a funny discussion. I want to um, keep talking. I'm going to look up that uh, that actual discussion with Matt. Okay. Because that was pretty funny. That was funny. So <clears throat> the point is, is that even when you go for free, you're still pay- paying $2,000 a year, which is way more than this course. And the question is, okay, what's the cost of whatever it is you're getting, a law school education or an undergraduate degree? And what is the benefit that you get out of that? And given the cost of this Google Analytics program, <laughs> the value that you get out of it doesn't have to be that high to be way more valuable <laughs> than an undergraduate degree or a law degree. It's, it's much less. So Matt, who's on a full ride at the University of Maryland, yep. he's paying zero tuition, but they still make him pay between eight and $900 a semester. Mm-hmm in fees and he says oh well but the fees pay for student infrastructure like student center gym campus police etc campus shuttle bus malpractice insurance because they're like student attorneys mental health clinic and counseling law library fee and a student activity fee which is like clubs and stuff but he says, by far, the biggest fee is the student infrastructure fee. So that's the student center gym. So buildings. Oh, and campus police. So staff and stuff. Okay. He says, that's $600 a month or $600 a semester. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so things that one might think tuition would pay for? <laughs> yeah. What is tuition paying for if not those? Things, right? <laughs> yeah. What? Where's the itemized description of what tuition pays for if the fees are paying for the fucking student center and the gym and the campus cops. And like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, Matt pays zero tuition. Matt's on a full ride scholarship to university of Maryland, no tuition, but he still pays more per semester than the entire cost of this Google data analytics program no matter how long you took to complete it at $39 a month. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're supposed to be able to complete it in six to nine months or something. And you have this potential. I mean, yeah, granted, I mean, it's actually not even that bad. What if you assume that there are, I don't know, whatever, there's a chance at getting a $68,000 job. (laughs) A decent chance. I would say a decent chance. Of course, it's not guaranteed, but neither is a job coming out of law school. And what kind of job are you going to get coming out of law school? Probably in the fifty dollars to $60,000 range. After three years and all the living expenses you spent while you were in law school and all the time. I mean, a Google Data Analytics course sounds like something you could do in the evening after your day job. So you're not giving up any current income. Oh, no, my friend Mike, who's doing it, is doing it in the evening after his day job. Yep. So it's all about what do I have to pay in time and in money, and what am I going to get out of it? And it sounds like you could end up getting something out of it that's worth more than what most law school graduates are getting after three years full-time and thousands of dollars in at least fees, um, if not living expenses and everything else. So is it worth it? That's the question. And so, you know, you're talking about doing this course and starting a business on your own. I would say the best way to do that 
is to do courses like this, which are cheap, so you can do more than just one, and two, get a subscription to Audible and start listening to audiobooks about starting businesses, whatever. Just get ideas and get exposure to the way the world works, and you'd be surprised how much you can get out of that book that cost you $15. Yeah. I just, I think that's why I think education in probably 10 years is going to be substantially altered. Like, I I, just don't see how it's sustainable. There's the cost difference is so different. It's vastly, wildly overpriced. And if you think about like the billionaires, you know, the people who have been our modern like heroes, the people who are the most successful of anybody that, you know, the people that they're going to talk about a hundred years from now are like all these tech wizards who dropped out of college. Yep. (laughs) They didn't go to, they did not get a stamp of approval from some committee of faculty, whatever they, they just went out and built shit. They went out and did shit. Yep. I would go out and talk to, you know, I don't want to like pump us up too much, but you should reach out to people like me and Ben and say, Hey, what are you guys working on? What are you guys struggling with? What are the things that you guys have a hard time with that need solutions? Yep. You know, or or talk to that doctor and say, "Hey, if I wanted to go contribute to the world, what what should I do?" And he is not like, "Well, first you go get a bachelor's in whatever and then you study." <laughs> he's like this doctor. He the dude has gone to more school than anybody and he's not talking about going and getting degrees. Yeah. He's talking about going and learning actual skills. And, you know, with an eye to the future, he's like, well, shit, technical skills are the things that are going to actually be useful. And that's going to be useful in every field, including law, <laughs> including law. If you God, like lawyer jobs are going to get replaced by the people who got good at tech computer shit. Yeah. You're going to be like all that, you know, I mean, mercifully, right? Like doc review and those kinds of things, like the very worst lawyer jobs. Yep. Those are the, those jobs are going to get replaced by robots. Yeah. Uh, yeah, boy. All right. Anyway, thank you, Josh, for writing in. I mean, again, and it's like, the thing is, it's fucking free. It's $39 a month plus your time. Yep. Your Which time is, is smaller. Way smaller than your time for an undergrad degree or a law degree. Yeah, I gotta. I, I've been like busting my niece's balls lately about her grades. She's a freshman in high school, mm. and I've been like, you know, worried about the fact that she's gonna get a B plus or an A minus in her AP hug class. And it's like, fuck, all right, well, look, she's a teenager. She's, you know, got the boyfriend now. She's, she doesn't she's in a community that doesn't like super value school. She, she does. And I'm like worried like, Oh, if she doesn't get straight A's, then she's not going to be able to go to Stanford, which is probably true. But does she need to go to Stanford? Does she need to even go to college at all? Well, that's the thing is I do think if you maintain super high grades, right, you show you can kill it in a school environment then the value is probably still there at some of these top programs, right? But the middle road is the worst road and it's the widest road. Yes. And that's where the value is dropping off exponentially. Oh, it's just fucking terrible. Like 
if you have mediocre grades and you go to a mediocre school and you pay full price mm. for it, you come out with a mediocre degree yep. that qualifies you maybe for a mediocre job. You've got a mountain of debt. You make a shitty salary. You've essentially sold yourself into wage slavery. And that's what's happening right now. That's this angst that we're seeing with all these undergrads who have these overpriced essentially worthless bachelor's degrees. Yeah. If you go to Stanford undergrad, then great. <laughs> like the world is now your oyster. But if you go to any mediocre school and way overpay and the same goes triple for law schools. Well, check this out. So I've just been looking into this because we got kids who are going to school um, pretty soon here and uh, I'm in Virginia and I, this is, this is, a, I feel like, I hope is an anomaly because there are other schools that are half this price, but I couldn't believe that the University of Richmond cost of attendance, this is for one year, is estimated at $77,000. <laughs> it's like, what, let's what do you Let's round that get? up to 80 because it's obviously going to continue going up. Yeah. So let's round that to 80. So it's, holy shit, $320,000 if you graduate in four years. Yeah. That'll be a cool 400,000 if you're on the five-year plan. Like what? You, that's University what of Richmond. That's like a, as a California native, you know, like, so just other coast, nobody has ever heard of no, that school. Like it, not even around here. It's, it's not like people are like vying to get there. There are way better schools right in the vicinity, right? We have UVA. Wow. We have, <laughs> even just George Mason is a, is a wow. state school that, okay, now is a lot cheaper because it's a state school, but you just like, can't even imagine like who is sending their children there yeah. and, and how I just, I got to I'm going to have to try to talk my niece, you know, and her, her mom, my sister, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sit down and have a hard conversation with them. I, I just like, I think everybody should be going to community college mm -hmm. if at all. Like I, I don't I just don't pay for undergrad. Yeah. God, don't pay anything close to that. If it was $8,000, we could talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> but $80,000. Holy shit. All right. Um, let's uh, yeah. wrap it up. Hump in. Let's do that. Be LSAT famous. Get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. Questions about the LSAT demon? Email help at lsatdemon.com and check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 342 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school or any school for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay for school if it's more than $39 a month.